attendance here, as Brother Justin mentioned, in choosing to spend uh, this evening on a Friday night with us here in praise and worship to our Lord. And as we break open God's Word together tonight, it's our prayer as always that the things that we study will be helpful to you. Uh, Regardless of where you are in your walk as a Christian, I think that there are principles in the study tonight that hopefully can be helpful as we consider once again some things related to the Christian family. Wednesday night we spoke to the young people uh, as it related to our Christian family and and some encouragement and some things for our young people to think about. And tonight uh, I want to talk in a related subject on the relationships that we share within our families and specifically what happens when that trust in those relationships is betrayed. And so we, uh, we want to build our homes and our families on the Word of God, on that foundation. Psalm 127.1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I believe that. And I believe that when we build our house on the Lord, it's a great blessing. But the reality is, sometimes relationships fracture. Sometimes there are problems in the home and in our families, and relationships are strained. And problems arise and people go for days or weeks or months or years sometimes without speaking to their family because of issues that have come up. And I want to talk a little bit about that this evening. Colossians chapter 3, 18 through 21 tells us what God's design for family relationships is. The scripture says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And I want you to know this evening that this is God's design for the family. That husbands and fathers would be good husbands and fathers, seeking to do that role in a godly way. That mothers and wives would be good mothers, good wives, and seeking to fulfill her role in a godly way. And that children would seek to obey their parents. That mothers and fathers would seek to parent well and raise good godly children. And that even if you're not a member of that family dynamic, that you as an individual with whatever relationships you have in your blood family or your church family, that you approach those things in a godly manner. But sometimes despite the blessings that come from following this standard, this standard breaks down. And sometimes our families don't look quite like this. And we don't see all of the blessings that come from having everybody in the family committed to a Christ-centered family structure. And so I want to talk this evening about how we can deal with some of those difficult situations. What are all relationships built on? Every relationship that you have, no matter who it is, it is based upon a foundation of trust. Now there's a verse in Proverbs 31, 10 through 12. This is talking about the virtuous woman. It says, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of his life. All relationships are built upon trust. And in this particular example, he says, This husband trusts his wife implicitly, totally, and completely. That his wife wants good for him, that she's going to treat him right, that she's going to be a blessing to him and help him through life. And this describes a family relationship and friend relationships and church relationships. All of them should be built upon trust and all of them are built upon that. This is what's at the core of every relationship that we have. And closeness only comes with a deep level of trust. And so it makes sense that when that trust is betrayed, the deeper the trust is, the harder that betrayal is. And that's what we find when it comes to our family dynamics and relationships. But I want you to know that without trust, you cannot be close and you cannot have good, intimate relationships with your family and your friends. Now, I want you to look at this very scientific chart that I created uh, that shows 
the differing levels of trust in relationships that we have with people. All right, and just, I believe that this just illustrates common truth that we recognize. When you walk down the street and you see a stranger on the street, you have zero trust in that stranger. You're not gonna hand your kid over to him and ask him to babysit. You don't know who this person is. You've never met them. They're just a stranger on the street. You have zero trust. Acquaintances, people you've met every once in a while, you might have a little bit more trust than a stranger, but still not a whole lot. Your coworkers, you see them every day. You're gonna have more trust in them, but still maybe not a ton. But the friends, people that you actually choose to spend your time with, you're gonna have a lot more trust in them. Your family members, theoretically, you've grown up with them. Theoretically, they're some of the closest people to you. You probably have a lot of trust in the family members that you've grown up with and that you have. And then your spouse is probably, if you're married, the number one person on this earth that you have the most trust in. At least that's really how it should be. As husband and wife become one flesh, there should be a deep level of trust that exists in that relationship that doesn't exist anywhere else. So as we think about this very scientific chart, I want us to consider the fact that when a stranger or an acquaintance says something hurtful or does something that's unkind or even evil to us, it might hurt for a little bit, but we're gonna be able to walk it off and shake it off and move forward. It's not really gonna bother us all that much. We can move on with life. When our friends do something, say something that's unkind, do something that's hurtful, it stings a whole lot more than a stranger. When our family, our spouse, our parents, our kids, our brothers, our sisters, whatever the case may be, when they do something that's hurtful and unkind, it stings a whole lot more than anybody else because the trust is greater. We've put more stock in that relationship, more investment in that relationship. And when that trust is betrayed, it hurts a lot. Where does that, where do those fractures come from in relationships? Well, I believe ultimately it comes down to the selfish desires and decisions that we make inside the family to structure. James chapter four, verse one says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? He asks here, why are you fighting? Where does your fight and your arguments, where does that come from? It comes from the lusts that you have within you. The betrayal of trust is at the core of fractured relationships, but ultimately those relationships fracture and trust is betrayed because someone in that relationship decides to put themselves first. Someone in that relationship decides to pursue a selfish or sinful lust or passion and get what they want at the expense of the other person. And when that happens, that causes pain and that causes hurt. Now, when every member of the family, as we've mentioned before, focuses on Christ, the family dynamic works. Everybody's focused on Christ and therefore no one is being selfish. Everyone is being selfless. And so if a husband is focused on Christ, he's gonna treat his wife like his wife deserves to be treated. If a wife is focused on Christ, she's gonna treat her husband the way that her husband deserves to be treated and so on and so forth in these relationships. But when we begin to veer off from that Christ focus and become self-focused, that's when these problems begin to arise in these relationships. And I wanna give you some examples of very real situations that many people have had to deal with in their families. Selfishness and a lack of focus on Christ can lead to sins such as verbal and emotional abuse, where one person in the family may be constantly negative. Maybe this person tells other family members that they're worthless, that they can't do anything right, and makes them feel terrible all the time. That's a verbal and emotional abuse. Maybe a member of your family is prone to chronic deceit or lying. 
where you never know what, if what's coming out of their mouth is truth or a lie because they chronically tell lies. And that can be extremely frustrating in a relationship. Unfortunately, child abuse can come out of these selfish and sinful desires and decisions because a parent who is more self-focused than Christ-focused can lose control and out of anger and out of frustration can take that out on their children instead of controlling themselves and having the self-discipline that they should have as good Christian people. Adultery and divorce can take place. Why is there adultery? Why is there a divorce? Now, there's a lot of reasons we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but ultimately it boils down to, most of the time, it is selfishness. It is a lack of self-discipline. It is one or both people in a marriage deciding that they're prioritizing themselves instead of Christ and instead of their spouse. And this leads to adultery, infidelity. This leads to divorce, which has an impact not only on the marriage, but on the children in that relationship as well. Unfortunately, some people experience physical assault from family members. Husbands who take out their frustration about perhaps their own failures in life and lose control and take that out on their wife, physically assaulting them. Sometimes family members may turn to alcohol and drug abuse, fulfilling the desires of their flesh, becoming addicted to these things because they are selfishly wanting to gratify flesh instead of focusing on Christ. And that can be a terrible situation when you're dealing with a family member like that. Sexual assault can take place, again, because evil, sinful decisions are made in the heart of a person that is not Christ-focused, and they decide to take what they want or to be inappropriate in ways that they should not. Gambling and financial ruin. Some people can get addicted to gambling, can make terrible financial decisions that affect you if you're a member of the family. And fathers that have that problem that lead their families to financial ruin, that impacts not only them and their wife, but their children, potentially for generations. And all of these sins and others that we could talk about are betrayals of godly trust. These happen when people put themselves first and God second. And when they do that, there are consequences that may come. Some of those consequences include emotional pain and turmoil. And I want you to put yourself in the situation tonight. I don't know your family situation. I don't know all your family members. I don't know how all those relationships are tonight. But I know that in many families, there are issues and there are problems that have come from some of these sinful and selfish decisions. And so you may be someone that has been a victim of some of these things that we've mentioned tonight. A victim of someone else in your family that has committed some of these things and hurt you in the process. And so you may be experiencing emotional pain and turmoil. Maybe you've faced grief and sadness over what a person that was supposed to love you and care about you as a member of your family has instead done to betray your trust. Maybe that's led to anger and resentment and a desire for revenge. Maybe you've felt anger and a, a desire to get even to them because maybe you've been hurt by them and you want to take that selfishness back out on them and give them back what they have given to you. Maybe you've become obsessed and depressed. Sometimes people become obsessed with a hurt that, that they have suffered at the hands of a family member and they can't move past it. And so they obsess for all of their life, constantly thinking about and dwelling on this action that has taken place. Sometimes they get so depressed and enter depression so deep that they want to harm themselves or even take their own life because of what that family member has done. It creates, at the very least, awkward and uncomfortable situations when there's selfishness and sin in the family dynamic. At family gatherings, it can become awkward. If you've been hurt by a family member and there's a problem in that relationship, 
people can begin to take sides in the family. And that's never a good thing when family members begin to take sides against one another. It can fracture those relationships where a father and a daughter don't speak for years, where brothers don't want to have anything to do with each other, where mom or grandma wants to get the whole family together so badly but never can because family members refuse to be in the same room as one another. And these are problems that can easily be created in our families. And when they are created in our families, they impact our congregations because our congregations are made up of families. And the stronger our families are within the congregation, the stronger our congregation will be. And the more effective we will be at our mission in spreading the gospel and being a beacon of light in this community of darkness. But when our families are weak, and our families are struggling, and our families have problems, it affects our ability as a congregation to do the work. We all know sometimes that these things can happen, even in the best of families. And so when you struggle with these types of problems, and maybe you've been hurt, you've been impacted by somebody, and maybe tonight someone is coming to your mind, some incident is coming to your mind, some problem, I want you to know that you have two ways of dealing with these family problems, and these hurts and these pains. The first of which is bitterness. You can hold on to the anger and the pain and the resentment caused by the betrayal of trust, but it will affect you for the rest of your life if you choose to do that. The other option is to move forward with forgiveness, to choose to let go of that anger, that pain, and that resentment and move forward with your life. That second option can help you to have peace as you move forward in life. I want you to know that bitterness, if that's what you choose, if you're here tonight and you can think about a family member that has hurt you, a problem that you have had in the family, and that you are harboring ill will or resentment or anger towards someone in your family, if that's the case for you tonight, then you may be holding on to bitterness. You may have bitterness in your heart. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Bitterness means acridity, especially Poison, and that's exactly what bitterness is. It's a poison that will slowly poison you. And have you ever been around someone that was really embittered towards someone else? That bitterness can almost emanate off of them, where you feel it in the room with every word that they say, with every way in which they speak or refer to a particular person or situation, and you can feel it. And don't think that other people aren't affected by your bitterness. When mom or dad is bitter towards someone else in the family, the children will pick up on that, and they will feel that, and they will begin to have negative feelings towards that particular person just secondhand because of the bitterness that you have that is eating away at you. The bitterness will cause you to focus on yourself, to cause you to focus on the physical instead of those things that will help you to attain eternal life. Now, it takes a lot of effort if you're in that situation tonight to let go of that bitterness and move forward with forgiveness, but we're going to talk about some ways in which we can do that. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness is something we often don't see in ourselves. We're shrouded in it. I mean, we're covered in it. And so oftentimes we see right through it and we can see other problems and other people's problems, but we don't see the bitterness that is in our own heart. And so I want to ask you to be honest about that tonight. As you think about relationships, and we're talking specifically about family relationships tonight, but include any relationship in that. Any person that, you've been, that you have been hurt by, that you have been betrayed by, that you have an issue or a problem with, and ask yourself, 
if you have forgiven and moved on, or if you are still harboring anger and resentment towards that person. And if you are, then you may have a root of bitterness that is within you. And be careful, because this passage says that root of bitterness will not only trouble you, but many will be defiled by it through you. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. I want you to know that God has called us to respond differently than human nature sometimes dictates. Our human nature wants us to be angry and mad and harbor that ill will and resentment. But God says this, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. When we're hurt, it can make us angry. It can make revenge seem attractive. But participating in revenge, as we talked about last night, and holding on to bitterness in our families, will actually hurt ourselves, hurt us. God is calling us to respond to evil or hurtful people in a different way. And he uses enemies as an illustration. You know, it's not really often that I, I think that we think about enemies, actually having enemies, I mean, in this life. Someone that is just dead set against you. I mean, how many enemies do we really have? But those family members that we may have real problems with, if that's how you have to think of them, then even if they are an enemy to you, the instruction is still, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them drink. Don't be overcome by that evil, but overcome evil with good and allow God to bring the vengeance. Allow God to be the judge. Allow God to take care of what they may need in way of justice. It's not your job to do that. It's important to recognize that if we return evil for evil, then God's vengeance will be coming for us too, not just for them. And there's no reason why we should want to bring the vengeance of God down upon ourselves. So tonight, if you're doing battle with someone in your family, if you've been hurt by someone in your family, or if you're harboring bitterness, anger, or resentment towards someone else in your family or outside, know that choosing bitterness and revenge and that evil sinful path makes you just like them, as we talked about in the story with Absalom last night. I want you to know we overcome bitterness through forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know, forgiveness is one of the more difficult parts of Christianity to actually carry out on a day in and day out basis. But God has called us to do that. And if we forgive somebody once for something that they have done, don't think that you're off the hook. And that's all you've got to do. In fact, the disciples actually asked Jesus that question, how many times should we forgive? Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. That phrase there in the King James is a little bit confusing, but it's not a multiplication problem. It's not a math problem there at the end that he's doing. It's 70 and seven times is what Jesus is saying. But Jesus's point here is not really to say, you got to forgive him 77 times and then you're off the hook. His point is to say, this is not a one and done deal. Forgiveness is something that's ongoing. It's something that's continual. It's something that we should have in our heart and live out in our attitude and in our actions. Our choice to forgive affects our own forgiveness. And I want you to know that tonight. If you're struggling with bitterness and problems in your family or relationships or anything that we've talked about tonight, 
If you refuse to forgive someone else, the scriptures are pretty clear that God will choose not to forgive us. And that's a scary thought. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, Jesus is talking about the attitude of forgiveness that we have toward others who have harmed us or have hurt us. If we're not willing to forgive them, why do we expect God to forgive us? I mean, that's, that's fair and just, right? Why are we expecting something of God that we're not willing to do ourselves? How often have we committed sin? How often have you done something that you know is contrary to the will of God, and yet you still expect God to forgive you, don't you? We all do. We want forgiveness for our sins, and if we want that from God, what God is saying is that we ought to be willing to give that to others that have hurt us. Matthew 18, verses 32 through 35, tells this story Jesus does of the unforgiving servant. Now this, servant is, or this story is about a servant who owes a very great debt to his master. And so he goes to his master and he asks him to forgive him of that debt. And his Lord has compassion on him. He forgives him of this tremendous debt. And I mean, this is a, a large sum of money, a lot of money that this servant owes his master. And the master forgives him. And then this servant goes out and he finds a fellow servant that owes him a very, very small sum of money. And he, he tells this fellow servant that he wants to be paid now. And the fellow servant can't. And so the fellow servant begs him to forgive that small debt. And he refuses. And he has that fellow servant thrown into prison. Now, how do you think that this man's Lord reacted knowing that he had forgiven him a huge debt and then he was unwilling to forgive someone else of a small one? Verse 32 says, Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses." That Lord was not happy with the fact that he had extended such grace and such mercy and then that servant was unwilling to do the same. And this servant ended up being thrown into prison until he could pay that debt which he would never be able to pay, especially if he's sitting in prison, unable to earn any money. At that point, it's over for him. And Jesus says this is a comparison to our relationship with God and the way in which we forgive other people. We have been forgiven of a tremendous debt of sin. And if you're a Christian here tonight, then I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the tremendous debt that you owe Jesus Christ for taking on his shoulders on the cross and becoming a substitute for your sin, taking your penalty, taking the death that you deserved and that I deserved, taking that upon himself and instead giving us his righteousness and his perfection. We have been forgiven a giant debt of sin, brothers and sisters. And the things that happen to us in this life, the relationship problems, the betrayals of trust, the hurts, the pains that we may feel, they're not fun to walk through, but they're really small in comparison to the giant debt of sin that has been forgiven and wiped clean off of our record. And so the point with this passage is that we need to recognize that forgiveness that has been extended to us and extend to that to others. <coughs> Now I want to tell you some things about forgiveness tonight because I think there can be some confusion about what forgiveness really means. Forgiveness is not saying what they did was okay, but it is letting go of the pain and the resentment. You know, some people feel like if I forgive this person and I move forward, it's like I'm accepting what has happened and I'm saying it's okay what they did. And that's not true. 
That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not saying what that person did was okay. What that person did may have been very evil, may have been very wrong, very sinful, very hurtful, very painful. Forgiveness doesn't mean that that's okay, but it means that you are going to let it go and put it behind you for your sake to be able to move forward with peace and have the relationship with God that you need. Forgiveness is not saying what they did was okay, but it's saying, I'm not going to let it affect me any longer. Forgiveness is not continuing to be a victim. Some people feel like that if I forgive them, it means I have to walk back in there and continue to be hurt over and over and over. Because forgiveness must mean that I say, oh, it's okay, and I go back, and then they hurt me again. And I forgive them, and I go back, and they hurt me again. And I forgive them, and I go back, and they hurt me again. And that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is moving forward with peace. It's not about letting someone to con- continue to hurt us purposefully, but once again, it's about us and the attitude that we want to approach life with and the relationship that we want with God. And if we hold bitterness in our heart towards that person, we certainly can't have the relationship with God that we need. Forgiveness is not forgetting what happened, but it's not dwelling on it. You know, people often bring up the scripture that where God said, I will remember their sins no more. And they say, well, we need to forgive and forget. Do you really think that that scripture where God says, I will remember their sins no more, do you, do you think that that means God actually forgot? That somehow he doesn't know that we committed sin anymore? That's not what the scripture means. Scripture means he's not holding it against us any longer. It's not recorded on our debt card anymore. It's been placed on Jesus's. He's not remembering our sins against us anymore. And so when people say you need to forgive and forget, it's not true. There are things that happen that are unforgettable. There are things that you may experience that will be with you the rest of your life and you'll never be able to forget it. But that doesn't mean you can't forgive and move forward with peace. And it doesn't mean you have to dwell in it and stew on it every day because if you're dwelling on it and stewing on it every day, you have bitterness in your heart, not forgiveness. And forgiveness is what helps you have the relationship with God that you need. And we're going to talk about some application of forgiveness in just a moment. Forgiveness is not based on their repentance, but it is based on your attitude. There's going to be a distinction we're going to make between some of the verses about forgiveness in just a moment that has to do with repentance. But I want you to recognize that the base level of forgiveness, when Jesus teaches about forgiveness, it's not based on the repentance of other people. It's based upon your attitude towards them, regardless of what they do. They may never say sorry. They may never repent. They may never change. The relationship may never be good again you can still forgive them. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. This is not a situation where you've been harboring something for years against somebody and you go, it's done. Suddenly I'll never think about it again and it'll just be gone, it'll be passed. No, that's not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is ongoing, it's continual. That was Jesus's point when he said 70 times seven, this is not a one-time deal. This is gonna be a continual process. It's a commitment that you have to make to say every day when I wake up, I'm going to choose not to wallow in anger and resentment. I'm going to choose to be spiritually focused and not physically focused. I'm going to choose to think good thoughts and positive things in my life and towards that person and towards that situation instead of the negative ones that I want to. Forgiveness is not a restoration of trust. Some people believe that these two things are the same. That if I forgive someone, the trust is restored. It's like it never happened. If it was my best friend that betrayed me and hurt me, and I choose to forgive them, we're best friends again. That's not what that means. Forgiveness and restoration of trust are two different things. There are situations 
that you may face where it may be wise to never ever restore trust with that person again, but you can still forgive them. There may be situations where restoration of trust doesn't make sense, but it doesn't negate the responsibility to forgive because forgiveness is an extension of God's grace, not a restoration of trust. And finally, God has called us to forgive, but forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. It's not the same as having a relationship with them again, but it is the first step toward that. And that's what I want to talk about moving forward. If you want to reconcile with that person, forgiveness is absolutely an essential step. I believe that the scriptures teach that there is kind of two distinct types of forgiveness that Jesus talks about. One of those is an attitude of forgiveness, which is the internal peace that you can gain through having that attitude of forgiveness, thinking those good thoughts of forgiveness toward the person, not dwelling in the anger and resentment and bitterness, and moving forward with your life. Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus said, When you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is a general statement to be forgiving. But then we see a statement that Jesus makes in Luke 17 and verse 3, where he says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Now, at first blush, you look at these verses and it looks like they're kind of contradictory, right? Because the one verse says nothing about rebuking him and, and him repenting and then you being able to forgive him. And the implication here is that if he doesn't repent, you don't have to forgive him, right? If he repents, forgive him. So if he doesn't repent, I'm off the hook. I don't have to forgive him. But that goes against a lot of the other scriptures that Jesus talks about forgiveness. And so this is the distinction that I think is being made. I think that there is an attitude of forgiveness that we are all called to have toward everyone and everything that happens to us. And then I think that there is an action of forgiveness that really what Jesus is talking about is reconciliation and a restoration of a relationship. And we'll look at some more verses that have to do with that. But reconciliation and a restoration of the relationship is dependent upon the other person's choice to change. If they choose to continue to act in an evil way towards you or continue to hurt you or harm you, you have the responsibility for your own sake to have the attitude of forgiveness and to move forward with your life and forgive them. You do not have the responsibility to go reconcile with them and restore the relationship with them if they're an evil person. That wouldn't even make sense for Jesus to instruct us to do that. But what I want us to realize is that in either situation, no matter what we're facing, you're not off the hook with forgiveness. We are called to be forgiving people, even if that means the relationship is never restored. God desires repentance from people, and he desires reconciliation. It says in Matthew 5, 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now, this is the idea of that higher level of forgiveness that equals restoration or reconciliation. He's saying, if you come to the altar and you're beginning to worship and you realize that you've done something, now the script is flipped, right? So in this case, we're the offender. We're the person that's done something. But if you're coming to worship and you realize that you've done something to offend someone else, the instruction is to go and seek reconciliation, to seek reconciliation. Now, that other person has the responsibility to be forgiving regardless for their own sake. But reconciliation is something different. That's a restoration of relationship. When should we seek that, or seek that reconciliation or restoration with people, with our family members? Well, first off, when it's possible. Romans 12, verse 18, If it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. There are some situations where reconciling to the point of restoring trust in a relationship is not possible. Now, that doesn't mean the attitude of forgiveness is negated. That's always there. 
But to have a relationship restored, it has to be possible. Now, what if that person that you had a problem with has passed away? You cannot be reconciled. You cannot be restored. There could be no trust that's regained, but you can still forgive. That's the attitude part of the forgiveness. It may not be possible, obviously, if they've passed. What if that family member doesn't want to reconcile with you? What if they have no interest in the relationship anymore? You still have a responsibility to be forgiving, even if you can't reconcile. Sometimes it's not going to be possible to live peaceably or to have good relationships with everyone. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes it's not prudent or wise. We've mentioned this before, but Romans 16, 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Now, obviously, this is talking about church specifically, but I think it's applicable to family and relationships that there are people whose sole purpose in life is to do evil. There are people whose sole purpose is to create division, create problems, and the instruction here from a church standpoint is to mark them and watch them and avoid them. And those aren't the type of people that we want to be around. And if that's your family member, if that's the person who has caused you hurt and pain, is a person that is just bent on seeking evil and hurting people, reconciliation is not wise. Having a good, deep relationship with that person is not a wise thing to do because they can influence you. And so there are times when it's not prudent to seek that reconciliation. But when we can, when it is possible, and when it is prudent, I believe that that's what God wants us to do in these relationships, is to seek a way to restore them and to reconcile with that family member. And I wanna walk you through uh, Matthew 18, the three steps here real quick, just as a reminder of the process of reconciliation. If you're here tonight and you're going, okay, I've had this problem with my brother. I've had this problem with my family member, my friend or whoever it is. I've been holding on to that. I know I don't need to. I need to be forgiving. And I'd like to to restore a relationship with them. All right. Step one, this is assuming you're both Christians. Step one, go to that person and talk to them and say, look, I know we've had history. I know that there have been problems, but I want to move past that. And, and whoever was at fault, regardless, I want to move past that. If you're at fault, you apologize, you ask for forgiveness. If they're at fault, you let them know what it is that they have done to hurt you, and you try to have them listen. Now, best case scenario, they listen, and they say, me too, I'm sorry it's been this way, you shouldn't have done that. You hug, you make up, you restore a relationship, you move forward. If they laugh in your face and they go, you're still thinking about that? What? That, or they go, that never even happened. I don't even remember that and they won't listen, and they belittle whatever that problem is, then you may need to go to step two. Step one, sorry, I didn't read it, was moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Step two is, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if this person you're trying to restore a relationship with, they, don't, they won't listen, but you still believe that it's prudent, and that it's possible and it's prudent, and you say, I still want to seek this, then you bring witnesses. And I'm going to recommend that you bring the elders of your congregation or good godly people. Don't just bring your buddies that you think are going to take your side. Bring good godly mature people to that conversation that can listen and be a witness to the things that are going on and then restate uh, what has happened and that you want to move forward and restore a relationship and all those things. And if they still won't listen, but you still believe that it's prudent and you want to carry that out, now there's witnesses, potentially the elders of the congregation or good, godly, mature people that can back up what's going on. And then step three, if that person, that Christian person is refusing to do what they need to do to restore that relationship, 
then it is to take it to the church. It says, if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. At that point, you are turning it over to the elders of the congregation to handle that church-wise from whatever standpoint is appropriate or needed in that situation. You've done everything that you can do. That's the process, generally speaking, that Jesus outlines of restoring relationships and of, of reconciliation when there's a problem between two Christian people. And so I want to encourage you to utilize that and use that if it's a situation that is needed in your life. Now as we close, I want to look at a couple of examples real quick of what reconciliation in the scriptures looks like. And there's two different examples that I want to use of some different types of reconciliation. I believe that one way that you can reconcile with a person that you have a problem with or that has hurt you is to agree to a peaceful separation. And this is actually what we see with Jacob and Laban in in, uh, the book of Genesis. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, Jacob wanted to marry a woman named Rachel. And so he goes and he works for her dad, Laban, for seven years. After those seven years, Laban deceives Jacob and gives him his oldest daughter, Leah, to marry instead. And so Jacob has worked seven years. He wakes up the next morning. He's married to the wrong girl. Okay, so this family relationship and father-in-law, son-in-law relationship is already starting off on a bad foot. Then he has to work an additional seven years. He gets Rachel after a week, but he has to stay and work for Laban for another seven years for the privilege of marrying the girl that he originally wanted to marry anyway. So now he's worked 14 years for this guy. But at the end of those 14 years, he's free to go. But Laban says, I want you to stay. I want you to keep working for me. What are your wages? What, What do you require? He says, you know what, Laban, just give me any of the speckled and spotted, you know, from your herds. You keep the good looking animals. I'll take the speckled and spotted. We'll call it good. Laban says, it sounds like a fantastic deal to me. And so God blesses Jacob and those speckled and spotted herds become huge. And Jacob is blessed with wealth and prosperity while Laban's herds get smaller and smaller. And so Laban and Laban's sons are very unhappy with the success that God has blessed Jacob with. And Genesis chapter 31 verse 1 says, when he, And he heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's he hath gotten all this glory. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. So suddenly Jacob's um, brothers-in-law, Laban's sons, are unhappy with him, and Jacob says, Look, it's time for me to go. God tells him, it's time to return to the land of your fathers. Get out of here. Jacob says, all right, let's go. So he loads up his wives, his children, and he begins the journey back to his homeland. Now, unfortunately, what he didn't know was that his wife, Rachel, had stolen some of Laban's idols. Now, when Laban realizes this, he gets furious and he begins to chase after Jacob and Rachel and Leah and the children and after three days, he overtakes them. Now, I might also mention that Jacob got up and left without even saying goodbye to Laban. So there's a lot of family dynamics here that are going on that aren't great. Uh, now you've got father-in-law chasing down son-in-law and family. And after three days, he gets them. He gets his men. He searches through all of their tents and all of their stuff looking for these stolen idols. Rachel had indeed stolen them, uh, but she is sitting on top of them in her tent and uses a feminine excuse as to why she can't rise for him. And so she gets away with it and, and has these stolen idols beneath her. And so then Jacob is very, very angry at the fact that his father-in-law has chased them down and has searched through their things. Uh, Genesis 31, 22, I kind of skipped over it, but it says it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled. He took his brethren with him, pursued after him seven days journey, and they overtook him in the Mount uh, Gilead. So three days after Jacob fled, he pursued after him and caught up to him within a week. Now, Jacob was wroth, 
and chode with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin? That thou hast so hotly pursued after me, whereas thou hast searched all my stuff. What hast thou found of all thy household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that they may judge betwixt us both. So you've got son-in-law now taking it out on the father-in-law, going, See, did you find any idols? You searched all my stuff. You pursued us. You caught us. You went through everything. Did you find anything? And so you've got fighting between family members, problems going on here that can affect generations of people. Verse 51, what did they decide to do about this? Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar, which I have cast betwixt me and thee. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge betwixt us. And Jacob swore by the, uh, by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount, and called his brethren to eat bread, and they did eat bread, and tarried all night in the mount. And early in the morning Laban rose up, and he kissed his sons and his daughters, and he blessed them, and Laban departed and returned to his place. Now do you know how Laban and Jacob solved this family drama and problem situation that they had? They said, look, I need to go this way, you need to go this way, but that's okay. We're going to make a covenant. We're going to make an agreement today that I'm not going to pass this point to come to you to harm you. You're not going to pass this point to come to me to harm me. Now notice they left open coming across that heap for good reason, for reconciliation, for restoration, but not for harm. They said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have this fighting. We're not going to have this harm. We're not going to be seeking harm for each other. And Laban got up and he kissed his kids and his grandkids. They spent the evening and the night together spending time together, enjoying each other, and then they went their separate ways. And they said, this is the best situation for all of us. But they did it peacefully. They did it with, I believe, forgiveness and reconciliation, a form of reconciliation. Now, their relationship was not all of a sudden buddy-buddy. They were not all of a sudden best friends. They recognized they needed to be in two different spots. That was okay. But they were not going to be seeking harm any longer toward each other. They were not going to be negative toward one another. They had reconciled and they had done that peacefully and peacefully separated. I believe that's one way that we can reconcile in certain situations. But ultimately, if it's possible, I believe that this is what God wants us to shoot for. And it's the example of Joseph and his brothers. Genesis 37, 3 and 4 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And you remember this story, right? Joseph is the favorite son. And so he gets this coat of many colors. He gets special treatment. It also doesn't help that God gives him dreams that essentially tell, you know, and he tells his brothers that they're essentially going to bow down to him at some point. And they really don't like the pesky younger brother that says they're going to bow down to him. And so they hate him. And at one point they decide, you know what? Let's kill him. And so they take their brother, they throw him in a pit, and they get ready to kill him. But instead of killing him, they decide to take him and sell him as a slave to Egypt. Verse 23 says, It came to pass when Joseph was coming unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it, and they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. 
And then there passed by Midianite merchantmen, and they drew up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, tonight, you may have a, pram, a family problem, a relationship issue that's been in your mind as we've talked tonight. But I'm going to guess that probably you've never been sold as a slave by your siblings. I mean, this is pretty bad. This is family drama taken to a really high level. I mean, they didn't kill him, at least. That's a positive. But they sold him as a slave. And so imagine being Joseph, having been sold as a slave by people that should love you and care about you. This is what happens to him. Now, Joseph goes through a series of, of, of events, uh, working for a man named Potiphar, rising up in his house, then uh, being accused of something he didn't do and thrown in prison. And then he interprets a dream for Pharaoh and he's brought up a second in command of Egypt. Now, I'm going to skip over all that just to let you know that Joseph, years later, is now second in command of all of Egypt. All right. And there's a famine that's come into the land. And his brothers are hungry, and they're, they're subject to the famine, and so they've come to Egypt to buy grain. Genesis 42, 5 and 6, it says, The sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and it was he that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Now, at first, they don't recognize Joseph, right? They, he, they sold him as a slave. They have no reason to believe he's in this position of power, but he recognizes them. And so he decides to put them to a series of tests, I believe, essentially, to see what their character was. He was, I think, judging their character, and based upon that, may have determined his actions toward them. And so he tells them, basically, that he wants them to go home and bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, to him. And the brothers immediately began to, to ask for that not to happen. And they tell him a story about how their youngest brother, uh, their father lost, lost uh, their young brother and it destroyed him. And now he's had another son and Benjamin has, is his youngest. And they don't want to put their father through that anymore. And he sees the compassion that they have for their father and for their youngest brother. But nevertheless, he forces them to do this. And they bring Benjamin uh, they bring Benjamin to him in Egypt. Uh, verse 19 of Genesis 42 says, If you be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of the houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me. Notice verse 21. They said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. You know what these brothers are talking about? The day that they sold Joseph into slavery. And this is something that we don't read in the original story. But they said, we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us. You know what Joseph was doing as they were pulling him up out of that pit, selling him to those Midianite merchantmen? He was begging them to stop. He was begging them for mercy to not do this. And they did it anyway. And Joseph now, years later, is seeing this in his brothers, the regret. And his brothers are going, this is our fault because we did that to Joseph. And so we have received this because of that. But they come back. They bring Benjamin. Joseph puts them through another test or two, but eventually he reveals himself to his brothers. It says, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. I bet they were. All of a sudden, they're shocked years later to realize the brother that they had sold as a slave, almost killed, is now standing there before them as second in command of all of Egypt and has the power to kill them on the spot if he so chooses. And so they're afraid. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. 
Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. What a perspective that Joseph had, a spiritual perspective. It saw the good in what happened and assured them that they weren't going to be hurt. Now Joseph goes beyond just forgiving them and saying, I'm not going to get revenge, I'm not going to kill you. He goes beyond that. In verse 11 of Genesis 47, it says, Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread according to their families. You know what Joseph did? Despite the bad history between him and his brothers, despite the fact that he was sold as a slave by people that should have loved him and taken care of him, he forgave them, but not only forgave them in attitude, but in action. Their relationship was restored. He put them in the best piece of land that he had, and he nourished them and took care of them and treated them, I think, in a, in a picture of how Christ treats us and God treats us in kindness and love. And they were able to be reconciled by having their relationship restored. And this, brothers and sisters, is the goal. This is what I believe God wants for us in our relationships. So if you have an opportunity to restore a relationship with someone that you've been holding bitterness towards, it's time. It's time to put the bitterness aside and choose forgiveness. If you've been holding on to bitterness towards someone that is gone or someone that is not worthy of restoring a relationship with, it's time to choose forgiveness and let it go and have the relationship with God that he wants to have with you. Colossians 3 verse 13 says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Remember, brothers and sisters, that our forgiveness in the sight of God is in at least some part due to how well we forgive others that harm us. Be forgiving. If you can't restore a relationship, forgive and separate peacefully. If you can restore a relationship and work towards rebuilding trust, then do it. It's worth it. You'll see blessings in the end. And if you're here tonight and you're struggling in some way and we can help you, we want to pray for you, pray with you, and walk you through a difficult path that it may be for you to fix some of the relationships that you may have. If we can help you, come sit on a front pew as we stand and sing.